folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to sacred mysticism, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is the farmpodcast.store. That is the farmpodcast, all one word, dot store. All right. Today's guest is a repeater and a heavyweight one at that. He is the host of the program, The Chill Podcast, which explores business, crime, politics, and esoterica. Folks, I give you guys the great Jimmy Fallon Gong. Jimmy, thank you so much for dropping by again tonight, sir. Thanks again for having me. I'm always happy to be on the farm. All right. So this episode should be dropping on or around Halloween. It might actually come out a week before Halloween. I'm not sure yet. But regardless, I don't normally go in for holiday-centric stuff. But I've always had a soft spot for the holiday Halloween and the film franchise as well, as you guys will soon find out. <laughs> um, and I had a great idea for the show. Well, more accurately, Jimmy did. Obviously, this is primo horror movie time. Jimmy's been on this trail and happened to be reviewing two films on his own podcast that have long fascinated me. That would be Halloween 6 or Halloween 666, depending upon which one you want to go with. The Curse of Michael Myers and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4 or... The Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Return of Texas Chainsaw. I think that they gave like about a dozen different variations on it, mm-hmm. regardless. It was the one with Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey, folks. That should immediately clue you in as the one I'm talking about. Um, I actually did a three-part series on Vise about these films many years ago. In fact, I think it was actually almost a decade now. Uh, it makes me cringe at a few points. I think they do hold up fairly well. I've always seen these movies as companion pieces, which may seem a little odd, but let me break that down for you guys. They came out at a weird time for the horror genre. Uh, They were both filmed in 1994. They both received heavy studio editing, and they both revolved around the notion of a serial killer cult. Now, this is quite striking as both were filmed over a decade before David McGowan's classic program to kill was released. Chris Carter's Millennium TV series, which is criminally underrated. You know, again, Carter's the creator of X-Files. I always, in a lot of ways, I think Millennium is actually superior, though. If you haven't watched it yet, please check it out ASAP. But anyway, uh, Millennium also dealt with such concepts, i.e. a serial killer cult, but not really until the second and mostly in the third season. Uh, And both of these films predate that by a couple of years. While all this stuff is remarkably mainstream in 2022, uh, Trailblazers uh, don't do either film justice in the 1990s. It's, it's going to be quite a journey unpacking these films. So, let's start the show. <laughs> <clears throat> Thank you. 
So, Jimmy, when did you discover these two curiosities? I'll be honest, Recluse, I'm not like a huge horror guy. So, like, I was more or less unaware that there are actually some really noited elements sneaking into a lot of lower budget and or, like, like quote-unquote less important entries into certain horror franchises. At least, I didn't know until people started telling me that that was the case. Um, I think specifically with these two films, I was definitely turned on to Texas Chainsaw Massacre by my buddy Dakota and with Halloween 6 by my buddy Blower, who each appear on the respective episodes that I did on these films. Uh, And of course, just a quick shout out for both. Dakota is like basically the house artist for Program to Chill and Blower is like a talented editor of this magazine, Apocalypse Confidential, which is almost kind of like a less evil feral house. It's pretty cool stuff. Uh, it's funny, Recluse, because like I didn't realize, I, th- I thought I had read a lot of your blog, but I didn't see these, uh, the series that you did on both of these. But And I had a mild panic attack when you pointed that out. <laughs> but thankfully, I think that my episodes do go in somewhat different directions, although we're not super far because it's just you know, we're both pointing to the same films, right? But <laughs> um, I think you're right that they are, they definitely feel like companion pieces to each other. And I do got to, like, I got to say, like, you writing about this stuff in 2013, man, that's like, oof, I was not on any of those wavelengths back then. But I guess I am younger too, probably. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you got to remember too, this stuff is like mother's milk to me. Um, (laughs) You know, I mean, I was one of those kids in the nineties that had like the subscription to Fangoria and the whole nine yards. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I actually just did a really interesting interview with JG Michaels of uh, Parallax Views on Mm -hmm. um, Near Dark, actually the uh, Kathleen Bigelow film, great vampire movie from the late eighties. And we were like discussing this and it's really interesting how, you know, you had sort of like these big uh, message movies in the 70s, like Parallax Views and The Conversation and Three Days of the Condor and a lot of other, you know, movies like that. I mean, I'm sure there's probably some big ones. Network, for instance, that I, you know, that immediately had slipped my mind there, um, that were making these kind of big philosophical points about elite power structures, how, you know, the national security state operated and so forth. Uh, which is why it's kind of seen as the golden age in a lot of ways of the conspiracy thriller or the paranoid thriller, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then it just, you know, in a lot of accounts, it kind of seems to disappear going into the Reagan era, but it didn't. A lot of this mm-hmm. stuff really just went underground into a lot of these, you know, low budget horror movies and just sort of cold films. I mean, I would kind of throw like David Cronenberg in there. I, I've never really considered Cronenberg to be a true horror director. Uh, yeah, you know, it's just I kind of feel like they lumped him in as a horror director because his movies were just so weird. Nobody really knew what to get you know, label them <laughs> back in the day. Um, but I mean, even guys like, you know, John, uh, John Carpenter, Wes Craven, I mean, there's a lot of really deep stuff, especially in some of Carpenter's stuff, though. Uh, JG's actually argued with me that Craven was the most politicalized of the uh, kind of 80s, you know, horror director gurus. But mm, honest, there's, maybe there's I could a, maybe say that 
there's a lot of interesting stuff in some of those films and like you kind of said it's not just you know the sort of classic ones done by like the name directors i mean even in some of these like sequels you'll just see some really nutty stuff i mean i think like the, the some of the later howling movies also get into some pretty crazy things but um you know i don't want to belabor this too much but it's it's very interesting you know as kind of a kid who grew up like with this sort of stuff along with like a lot of the other sort of you know along with the low budget horror movies kind of the 80s cold classics like repo man and that kind of stuff you know it's mm -hmm. kind of um just surreal seeing how like mainstream a lot of this kind of stuff was i mean this was the you know you, you always like saw this presented in just this really kind of kitsy low budget like uh fashion for years and now i mean you've got like these big budget tv series like stranger things and what have you trying to tackle a lot of these same concepts so yeah it's you know more of the um the kali yuga or the twilight zone-esque reality that we currently <laughs> exist in all right uh so any thoughts on the era in which these films came out in i.e those in the post 80s pre-scream days when horror uh was largely out of fashion save for a few high profile adaptations of literary classics i you know bram stoker's dracula uh what was it kenneth Branagh's frankenstein the you know interview with the vampire adaptation etc etc uh, while this made funding tough, in a way, this kind of freed up filmmakers to creatively work in these low-budget horror realms and a lot of weird stuff like I've just been alluding to before. Yeah, guys like Carpenter, Craven, Clive Barker, who was another one who did some high-concept, really, honestly, high-concept works in the early to mid-90s, like People Under the Stairs, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, and The Mouth of the Madness, which is probably my top five all-time favorite movies, quite frankly. Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions, another movie that would be high in my ranking of all-time favorites as well, sad to say. <laughs> uh actually pretty much all those movies would be high in rankings of uh, my all-time favorites except for maybe nightbreed uh <laughs> in general i find this whole period from the early to mid 90s and horror just be endlessly fascinating as both a fan and a researcher the hurricane so how do you feel about it i mean since you obviously don't seem to have quite grown up in this milieu like i did yeah no i definitely like growing up i think i saw like Halloween, the first one, you know, and like here and there, I, I really didn't absorb a lot of this like 80s, 90s, like horror stuff in, initially. Uh, it's funny, though, because like people under the stairs, I saw that one relatively recently. And that feels so fresh, you know, that feels like it could have been made recently, or rather, it feels, you know, like, very timely, I guess I would say. And in the Mouth of Madness, I specifically saw that one because there was some episode where you talked about it and like just the concept of hyperstition. And that movie sadly continues to be just like extremely relevant to things. <laughs> like it's almost baffling how like important in the Mouth of Madness continues to be. <clears throat> But, you could actually, you could kind of mm -hmm. throw in Wes Craven's new nightmare in that category as well, because I mean, that basically revolves around like the whole concept of Freddy Krueger entering into the real world and terrorizing the actress Heather Langenkamp, who was the, who played Nancy in the first and third Elm Street movies and who plays herself in New Nightmare. Like Robert Englund appears in it as himself, Wes Craven appears in it as himself. It's, um, 
it, in some ways it's even more extreme than in the mouth of madness in terms of like breaking down the third wall and you know so forth so um you know again it's it's just really interesting to me that there were just so many of these kinds of movies being made by some of these kinds of directors in that time frame yeah you're right that like these films do seem to reward your attention and i mean it's interesting right because like uh i'm sure you're familiar with the phrase like necessity is the mother of invention right like in some ways it kind of reminds me of the early days of jazz where like jazz as an art form was pushed forward like specifically by the technical limitations of the recording medium itself. Like they needed to fit everything within a relatively short song, which led them to like play faster, you know, to do more solos and so forth. So it like changed the sound of jazz or whatever. And like, I think you see that to some extent with these lower budget horror films where like, of course there's no shortage of like bad horror films that no one will really remember but like at the time there were these directors and writers and visual artists that knew that they could set themselves apart by like putting in really truly trippy and creative stuff into the films and it it has been cool to see that john carpenter's getting some critical attention towards the end of his life here as salty as i'm sure he is rightfully so about how long it took and so forth yeah, I mean, he's another guy with like, you know, some like the Escape from New York, Escape from L.A. films, like, mm-hmm. know, in the Mouth of Madness, Prince of Darkness. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's a lot of stuff that you could go on with just Carpenter alone. But um, it is very nice to see that they're getting the attention that they, you know, really do deserve. And I think you're absolutely right about how um, budgetary constraints in a lot of cases can spur some innovation. Um you know, frankly, I mean, I kind of think Tarantino, for instance, did a lot of his best work in the low budget years. I've never really been a lot of a big fan of the post uh, pulp fiction, you know, scripts or films that he's done. So, yeah, someone needs to tell him no occasionally. And it's funny you brought up Stranger Things because, like, they're playing with some really interesting ideas, but like, they are just like dragging it out to so many seasons, just like squeezing the same ideas. Like, it's just like too much, you know, like it should have been like, I don't know, one season or a movie or something, but yeah, yeah, it's neither really, here nor there. <laughs> yeah. I really don't think. Yeah. I mean, the, the first season was so good. I mean, it was just, there was really no way I think that they could have improved on it. I mean, they probably should have stopped while they were ahead, but mm-hmm. they never do. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So my understanding is that, Halloween 6, along with uh, the two prior installments, the fourth and the fifth film, that, films, that is to say, uh, were shot in Salt Lake City. Uh, any insights on that one? I do, actually. I have some information on this. <clears throat> so, as I'm sure you're probably aware, Hollywood has always filmed a ton in Utah. And historically, it was a lot of southern Utah, specifically with cowboy films. And that goes all the way back to like the earliest days of Hollywood, basically since they started shooting like on location, getting those crates. Like for those of you unfamiliar, this is kind of what down like by the Moab region we're talking about, right? Like um, this would be kind of also like more recently where like they filmed portions of Westworld and that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, all those classic like landscapes of yeah. desert and so like forth. John yeah. Ford westerns and what have you. And this was also, by the way, the same area where they found the Utah monolith too. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically, there's always been tons of cowboy movies, but also there has always been, um, well, like the best cowboy movies, but also a lot of low budget stuff and a lot of independent indie shoots, and also anyone trying to get around unions, right? <laughs> Um, also, there's always been, well, since the start of the Sundance Film Festival, there's always been that industry connection. So, like, there definitely is a lot going on in Utah with the film industry. And it's interesting because for those who want some Jimmy Fallon gone more, I actually was a part-time janitor at Brigham Young University, specifically in the Fine Arts and Communications Building which included a substantial animation department of many professors who had worked at Pixar, as well as other studios. So Pixar and other animation studios heavily recruit from BYU. I used to wander around their offices in the early morning, emptying their trash cans and seeing all of the different like Pixar artifacts and awards. Um, there's also a pretty there's like certainly a fair amount of noited or parapolitic, parapolitically potent films that were filmed in Utah, right? For all the reasons that I just said, but also potentially some reasons I didn't mention. Uh, there was like the Iger sanction, for example. And I don't know if you realize this, Recluse, maybe you did, but a portion of 2001 Space Odyssey was filmed in Utah. If I'm not mistaken, it was it was, the it was sequence or something. What's that? Was it the beginning, like the dawn of humanity sequence? Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, it's literally the yeah. portions with the monolith. So yeah, yeah, that's it's, probably it, one reason why they did the monolith stunt. Well, whoever did back in 2020, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Utah, I mean, it makes sense, and I can definitely see Utah being very popular for exteriors. I know, like you know, for those of you listening who have never been there before, that might seem a little strange to say, but it's like even though Utah is very deserty, what's really cool about it is there are different kinds of deserts throughout the entire state. It's not like you know Arizona, for instance, where it's almost kind of like a monolithic desert. Uh, Utah, yeah. like there's different varieties of it, so to speak. It's in, really in a relatively close area, too. And if you need to say, I don't know, film in a forest, you know, go up in the canyon, it's not that far either, so. Oh, God, well, then, you, you know, you go to, like, the Great Salt Plains or something, that's mm -hmm. like you're on freaking Mars or something like that. Yeah. And then, of course, there's a history of specifically horror films shot in Utah, so there's the ones we mentioned, but... There's also, you know, on the low budget end, there's like Troll 2. That's a famous one. There's The Exorcist 2 on the higher end, both filmed in Utah. Also, interestingly, a lot of the A24 stuff now is filming in Utah. So like portions of Midsommar uh, and, of course, Heredity, Hereditary was shot and takes place in Utah, which did you see that one, Recluse? Yes, I've seen Hereditary, and that is a just profoundly disturbing movie. Um, I don't, you know, generally get wigged out by movies, but that one wigged me out. I've only been able to watch it once. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's a really freaky movie and potentially filled with some 
interesting themes maybe for another day <laughs> yeah yeah now that's interesting i was not aware that utah had that uh you know that strong of a connection to the horror um uh genre but i suppose that's not entirely surprising Mm -hmm. uh well you got anything else in that regard for us no i mean also just a lot of disney live action stuff but i mean just all kinds of movies that's all i got for utah yeah yeah i mean it's a bit, well the disney stuff i suppose makes a certain sense and you know the animation and so forth because of um what is it the silicone slopes i mean again it's you know people probably uh, haven't been to utah before aren't familiar with the fact that there is a pretty significant tech industry there mm -hmm. um you know going back to byu's connections really you know probably to the early arpanet and possibly even before that with some of the work that was done like on radio and that kind of thing in utah so you know having animators makes a lot of sense but it's really interesting that they also seem to have had a bit of a presence in the film industry there was i know that one oh gosh i can't remember its name now but there was the one studio that was mostly owned by mormons that had produced like hangar 18 and like some of these other sort of like documentaries from the 70s that went into or hangar 19 i think maybe it is uh and some of these other like documentaries from the 70s that went into like the ancient astronaut tropes and stuff like <laughs> that. And uh, so there's that connection. And then bizarrely, too, my understanding is that uh, Utah has played a pretty significant role in keeping synth pop going all these years, especially during the dark days of the 90s. I, I, <laughs> I don't understand it, folks. But I've I've heard B Machine. He's a pretty gnarly artist, and he, along with a lot of these other people, were on a label owned by Mormons based out of Utah. So. Yeah, no, both ska and synth are weirdly popular in Utah, and I don't really understand why. But yeah, I've heard that there's like big electronica festivals and stuff there. I mean, like it's. Yeah, it's it's very strange that it does have some of these connections to the entertainment industry. Um, but anyway um yes yeah, so we were though i think going to try to avoid not making this into a total mormon one so let's I know. <laughs> okay. um all right in your research where did you find the cult element in halloween six uh where do you think that it came from i guess i should ask it was introduced in part five sort of ish and i've variously mm -hmm. seen it attributed to director dominique Anthinian Gerard and or longtime franchise producer Musfata Akkad. Did I totally butcher that? Akkad, I don't know. That seems pretty close. Akkad, I think I got right, but Mustafa. Probably, yeah. You, you know the Halloween franchise, you know who the hell I'm talking about, guys. He's, he's on every one of them, I think. I think he even got credit after he died. But... I think literally all of them, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, what did you turn up in your research on uh, where the cult elements came from, sir? So the short version is, I don't know, but my buddy Blauer was explaining how, just like you said, they sort of set it up in Halloween 5. And they sort of intentionally introduced a few concepts, and they specifically chose not to nail down where things were going to go. And then <clears throat> my buddy Blauer suggested that Daniel Ferrans, who was the scriptwriter uh, for Halloween 6, he apparently he wrote a long franchise Bible laying out the lore of the franchise. And 
I could be wrong, but I don't think that that franchise Bible was ever made public. But I think that might potentially answer some of these questions. But I guess the implication being that Ferran's sort of like laid it all out. Um, I wasn't aware of Akkad until doing, you know, the episode on him. But man, I could hardly believe his story. Like Recluse, what uh, what insight do you have about <laughs> how he died, basically? I don't, you know, I was going to ask you about that too because he was he died in a terrorist bombing, right? In mm-hmm. 2016, 2017, something like that. Uh, I mean, it was it might have actually been a little while after um, earlier than that, but I mean, it wasn't super long ago. But yeah, two thousand five. Okay, 2005. Okay, so it has been a few years now then. But yeah, I mean, he's he's a really interesting guy. I mean, do you have any like thoughts on him? No, I mean, like, okay, well, it's interesting. I do, I do have some thoughts on him. Okay, so it seems very significant to me that his body of work producing involves literally like the movie on Muhammad and like one other historical film I think maybe on Saladin or something like that. And then like 10 horror films, like including the entirety of the Halloween franchise minus maybe like the newest ones. And like, I was going to ask you, do you think that this speaks to like a certain like religious mindset, you know, like, cause it's almost like, it seems like sometimes the people most invested in satanic narratives are religious people. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's a bizarre thing because like you're saying, I mean, yeah, he basically did at the onset of his career, he made the movie about uh, Muhammad and then he made the um, Lion of the Desert film about, uh, you know, one of the Islamic tribal leaders. And pretty much from there, I mean, he just did the Halloween franchise from there on out aside from like two other uh, I think low budget horror movies, uh, especially since the you know message and uh, the other one, um, Line of the Desert, were fairly high concept ones as well. Um, <clears throat> I mean, cynically, I would poss- would suggest that this might have been um, a money laundering scheme. <laughs> <laughs> So that was, you know, at least my first thought. I mean, we don't really know what kind of connections this guy had, but let's just say maybe hypothetically uh, he did have some connections and maybe the more militant underground or something like that. Uh, They might have seen, you know, um, cinema is a good way to launder money. I mean, obviously the mafia here has been doing it for a very long time. It's, you know, proven to be very adept at that because it's easy to lose money when you're making a film and not have to be accounted for. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely that possibility. I mean, the guy starts off uh, trying to make a deeply spiritual film um, and quickly learns that that's not really (laughs) the kind of thing that's you know, going to make much money uh, in the United States. And yeah, then he goes into horror films. Uh, One thing that, you know, we should point out also is that the original Halloween, uh, which he was the producer of, and I think also the principal financier behind, uh, is one of the most successful movies ever made. Mm -hmm. I mean, it had a budget, I think, of like 20 to $50,000. I'm not sure 
what exactly but i mean in the time that it was released i mean it's probably grossed several hundred million dollars by now so i mean i know you know i mean people point to like star wars where it's made you know i mean almost a billion dollars i mean that's true but when you look at the amount of money that it costs to produce those films and the marketing and expenses and all that other stuff compared to halloween which cost practically nothing and it had almost no marketing campaign and it's just you know it's made insane amounts of money so um <laughs> that might have been another reason why he had opted to stick with this because i mean it was also i mean an obvious way where you would have a lot of weird you know monies coming in and out of it i mean it, it but then again, too, you know, you have to sort of wonder, well, I mean, maybe the first Halloween was so successful because it was being used to launder money. I mean, who knows? I had never yeah. considered that possibility before, but I mean, it is interesting that. Well, I mean, like independent films like frequently were, though, like even like there's the added element that he was from Syria and Lebanon, sure, but like even I was just reading about, you know, something like Deep Throat and like that movie made a huge, huge, huge amount of money, but like they were also just laundering the hell out of money too. So it becomes very hard to figure out when some of these independent films are, you know, it's not like even reputable Hollywood quote unquote yeah, has yeah. very good books. It's in fact a you know, I mean, there's also, I mean, the tax code that factors into this, too. I mean, I have it on good authority um, in this regard that, I mean, there are periodically movies that are greenlit in Hollywood where the studio heads, you know, they know that the movie is going to tank. They know, mm -hmm. they know it doesn't. <laughs> you know have a snowball's chance in hell of making back what they're going to spend on it but they go through with it anyway and i mean some people assume that this is just to push some kind of agenda or other you know political agenda uh in some cases that may be correct but you know going all the way back in the day you know a lot of times this was done because they wanted it as a freaking tax write-off you know, yeah there's a well-known short of it there's a well-known phrase in hollywood and in accounting in the accounting field that like the true artists in hollywood were the accountants so looking at it from that perspective with Acade, you know you could look at his ongoing love affair with the halloween franchise and low budget horror in general as the most practical path to take because on the one hand, horror movies cost absolutely nothing to make, especially slashers. So if you do happen to catch lightning in a bottle like you did with the first Halloween and to some extent maybe a few of the sequels, you can make a lot of money off of it without having to spend very much. And then mm -hmm. conversely, on the flip side of the coin, if it tanks, you can just write it off. <laughs> so... It's kind of like a win-win situation there. You're not really, you know, throwing a lot of money at this. You know, maybe you make something out of it. But, I mean, even if you don't, you can still use it as a tax write-off to maybe cover up some of the other nefarious stuff that you're um, you're involved in. <laughs> now, I wanted to ask you, Reclus, <clears throat> with horror films as, like, a fandom, I feel like there's sort of 
two camps and maybe some overlap, or I wanted to run this past you at least. Do you perceive there to be any crossover between horror film fans and getting into religion and or occultism? The two. Um, well, when you say religion, do you mean like Christianity or do you mean like alternative spiritualities? Both. I'm curious about both. I would say it tends to try or attract people more into like, you know, um, pagan or occultic kind of practices and so forth i mean mm -hmm. i don't know if i mean this might have been different obviously going back into the day and i mean there were certain films i mean you know uh, I, i'm not ashamed to admit i prayed after i saw the exorcist for the first time for instance but i mean i was also mm. a teenager at the time so you know there you go but you know in general i mean i kind of think of something like um the craft for instance which probably did more to popularize wicca uh when i was a teenager in the 90s than you know i mean all the pagan spirit festivals and you know the uh daytime yeah. talk show appearances by i mean the white witches and what have you could have ever accomplished so I do tend to think that, I mean, people in, um, you know, because there's usually a bit of an overlap, too, with heavy metal subculture as well. Not always, but I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, you know, most metalheads tend to be horror affectionados to some extent or another, along with, you know, some of the other usual suspects like the Conan franchise and some of the, you know, more like manly <laughs> sci-fi kind of stuff like that um so you don't see any of the horror films now you see it sort of like leading people more into pagan occultism like you don't see a lot of people being into horror films and going into traditional religion not so much but again i never really went in for what I would kind of think of as the more Catholic, maybe flavored movie horror films. Like, mm. I mean, I do like the exorcist and I think the third exorcist is actually utterly brilliant too. That's a really fascinating movie on a lot of levels, but I mean, a lot of other stuff in that kind of uh, vein, like uh, the omen or stigmata, I was never really into that kind of stuff now there was like what the bill paxton movie frailty i mean that's not really a catholic centric one but yeah i i never really was into the demonic possession kind of stuff like that which i would think would be the ones that would more reinforce like a christian worldview if you will yeah because so. i was wondering with like a cod having something of a religious background i was wondering if there was a because I think a I lot mean, of people know, like, it leading into being into, like, paganism or whatever. But, like, yeah. I was wondering if there was the other thing, too. Yeah, well, I mean, I just, I don't know if I really see, I mean, because, you know, you could definitely make that argument with somebody like, what's his name, William Peter Blotty or whatever, mm -hmm. who wrote the, um, you know, the novel that the first Exorcist was on, and then I think he wrote and directed the third film, he also did a, uh, another fabulous movie that's kind of a part of that series called The Ninth Configuration, um, mm -hmm. but in his case, I mean, he was definitely a pretty hardcore Catholic, and I do think that, you know, there was, uh, you know, I mean, that intention to try to reinforce the faith and there was that certain propaganda, propaganda, propagandistic element to it in that respect. 
um you know with those types of movies but i mean when you get into uh something like the halloween franchise i mean i just i don't know that it's going to really have that that same kind of like effect to it because it's not really i mean i guess later it kind of gets into possession a little bit but i mean it's not really like a huge uh thing in the franchise for a lot of the peak installments um, you know, in fact, I mean, it's, you know, you don't really realize that there's anything necessarily supernatural about Michael Myers until like maybe the second movie. I mean, up until that point, I mean, yeah, he's taken some, you know, hits, but I mean, nothing that I mean, an average human being couldn't have withstood, you know what I'm saying? It's only like, I mean, I think at the end of the first movie, after he gets shot multiple times and they go out and they see he's not there, that you're kind of like, oh, wait a minute, there, maybe this guy's not <laughs> just a normal person, you know? Um, but yeah, it just, there is the weird druidic element though to Halloween, um, which is very interesting. And I mean, they, you know, played that up even like in the third one with the Halloween masks and stuff, which has actually got some really interesting stuff in it in terms of, you know, uh, twilight language and what have you. So, but yeah, I mean, to my mind, if anything, it almost seems like it's it's glorifying this kind of stuff. Um, I just I don't think that, you know, a lot of people embraced like the Islamic faith or <laughs> Christianity or something because of the Halloween franchise. I mean, certainly not to the extent of like something like The Exorcist or something like that. Yeah, it does seem like it's more of the pagan and occultism path rather than maybe a subset going into Catholicism, but yeah, I don't think a lot of people are getting born again through slasher films. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I kind of, I think the born again crowd would probably be centered around like the more religious themed ones. And like I said, I was personally, I was never really a huge fan of those kinds of uh, horror films. I, you know, like I said, I did the exorcist and um, a couple of the other ones, but yeah, just, it's not really my thing. Mm. Um, they just weren't freaking weird enough, Jimmy, to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so okay, man, just really interesting guy. Uh, it's fascinating that, I mean, he was kind of the poobah over, you know, the purse strings of a lot of the Halloween franchise. Uh, it's never really talked about. And of course, he was killed along with his uh, 34-year-old daughter, in 2005 um, and bombings at the Grand Hyatt uh, it's really weird too with the numerology of this I have just noticed as well um, the bombing occurred on 11-9 November 9th which is a big date in Nazi cosmology of course that was the date of the beer hall push if I remember correctly and a few other things and obviously you've got the 11 and 9 in there as well and then um, being Hyatt as well, there's there's been some interesting high-profile disasters relating to Hyatt's that uh, some of my buddies have been looking at. Interesting, interesting. Uh, he was also from Syria, too, which, I mean, again, is another fascinating point, given our, um, you know, the, what kind of started to play out with Syria about five or so years after uh, this bombing. And also, I mean, the kind of longstanding uh, connections that some former Nazis had to Syria. Um, but also, Akkad did not die initially at the bombing. Oh, really? He died two days later on November 11th. That's 11-11. Hmm. 
Um, yeah, so there's definitely some interesting numerology behind all of this with his death as well. Um, again, I, I don't know what it means, guys. It's just, you know, another one of the really weird things about this franchise and uh, just, you know, how a guy who ended up starting out with these high concept movies about, you know, Mussolini's troops being defeated by... Uh, tribal leaders and the life of muhammad ended up doing the halloween franchise and all this other good stuff that we've uh, been speculating about you know it's an enigma wrapped in a puzzle or whatever the heck it is <laughs> all right so okay, okay how about the ruins then that they're used in halloween six well i think they were first introduced in five with that weird tattoo that michael myers has but it was again really in the sixth film that they started to get into this stuff so do you got any thoughts on that sir i do i have thought a lot about this so recently i was doing some work on the necronomicon more about the origin story than the text itself right not to get sidetracked on Lavenda, as always. Uh, but <laughs> the point is that Lavenda, or Simon, quote-unquote, I guess I should say, Simon argued that the point, like, basically he said that Wicca, you know, the practice more or less originated from Gerald Gardner's Book of the Shadows, right? And Gardner claims that the Book of the Shadows, that the Book of Shadows was an ancient grimoire from an ongoing coven that he was inducted into. In reality, <laughs> he wrote it. Gardner made it up. It was a syncretic work of fiction that involved lifting stuff from Crowley, from Freemasonry, and from older grimoires, right? And so, like, basically, there's, like, kind of like this hyperstition playing, like, inventing a new tradition element because like nothing not like nothing from wicca is like genuine it's all basically a construct like a 20th century construct and it's interesting right because in the text of holly of halloween six the film pretends like the runes particularly the rune of thorn right it pretends like that's an authentic rune and there's virtually no way that's true. Or rather, the rune might be authentic, but it almost does not, like, it almost certainly can't correspond with what they happen to be used for now. You know, like, it's just inventing meaning through forgeries, right? That's what Wicca and all of the offshoots of Wicca are all about. Um, <laughs> so Lavenda or Simon, he argues that basically no magical tradition is authentic. It's all fake. It's always been fake, but you imbue it with meaning. And he takes like almost an existential approach or like winking and nodding, right? With regards to the question of authenticity, like there is no authenticity. But on the flip side, there are groups interested in occultism, which are older than the relatively modern Wiccan revival, right? And I actually wanted to ask you, Recluse, since I know you're pretty deep into this stuff right now, have you encountered any groups, at least in the United States, which might legitimately lay claim to any kind of authenticity in their occult practice? Uh, yeah. Uh, ballad singers in uh, Appalachia. Yeah, that one episode you did with the guy that... Uh, yeah, Daniel Sutton. Uh, 
Well, I mean, that again, really you, know, good. you know, this is um, this is something I actually just got in my strange realities presentation. I'll give you guys a little bit of a glimpse into what I talked about. But OK, so um, within the Celtic societies, you had an aristocracy, right? And there were basically three different branches of the aristocracy. There were the warriors, the druids and the bards. And um, they all had religious functions to one extent or another, but obviously the Druids, I mean, being the priest class, were the big dogs in that regard. Uh, but like I said, they all contributed. So, you know, we get into the time of the Roman era, the Druids are pretty well snuffed out, so are the warrior classes. But the Bards, they fare a little better. And I think that they were able to intermarry with the new aristocracy that the Roman overlords set up and were basically able to retain elements of the Celtic faith in uh, initially kind of the epic poetry from the Middle Ages and so forth. And then later that was translated into, you know, a lot of the balladry that we would, you know, the Scottish and uh, English folk ballads that we would now think of as like the child ballads. Uh, because a lot of the the more, um, you know, mystical centric ones like True Thomas um, and uh, uh, Tamlin, I mean, those are definitely some of the older ballads going back to the, you know, 15th, 16th century. In the case of True Thomas, I mean, that was definitely based in some epic poetry i think from at least like the 10th or the 11th century or something like that so uh you know you have kind of like the mythos around the uh the welsh bard of Taliesin as well and that kind of like transmission point so my kind of thinking in this is that what remnants of the true traditions we had were probably passed down in this fashion and it's really obvious to my mind if you know like what to listen for like you know to give a lot of you listening to this who probably aren't familiar with a lot of this kind of music like a, probably the most uh, well-known child ballad is uh, Scarborough Fair which uh, Simon and Garfunkel did a really popular version of during the 60s and um, you know if you've ever wondered about kind of the course of it where they're like Parsi sage rosemary and twine and they keep you know doing this over and over again well this kind of stuff appears frequently in a lot of these kinds of bouts where they'll just randomly start singing about like these different spices and herbs and stuff like that and i think what this you know was meant to do was to retain recipes for these kind of holistic medicines and stuff that some of these um you know healers your wise women and that kind of you know those kinds of people would have been using and in the case of um oh god one of the willy ballads i can't remember which one <laughs> Sorry, no, guys. The Willie Ballard recluse, really? Yes, yes, guys. They actually use the name Willie a lot in these ballads. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's more or less like a straight up where they're reciting like a, a magical spell for like how you make like a double of a baby or something like that. Uh, it, you know, it's really amazing. And then, of course, the fairy lore was, I mean, really very much preserved in things like True Thomas and uh, Tamlin and that kind of thing. So I do think the actual remnants of the, you know, what is left, I mean, has largely come down to us through these kinds of um mediums more than anything else uh 
which is kind of interesting with the stuff with Crowley and where, you know, the kind of mind fuck with this comes in because Crowley, of course, um, famously uh, tried to contact his holy guardian angel at that lodge um, off of Loch Ness. Do you recall what it was called off the top of your head? Bolskine? Yeah, Bolskine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which he had procured from um, uh, Clan Fraser of Lovett's who owned almost all of that land around Loch Ness and had for many years. And they were actually like one of the most vigorous uh, collectors of child ballads in this era. And specifically like a lot of the mm. very centric ones. And uh, one of the families, I get into this actually in my special relationship book, but one of the Lovett branches, uh, Fraser of Lovett branches that was there near Loch Ness actually were major collectors of child ballads. So again, it, kind of begs the question well did crowley i mean even though he obviously did make up some of this stuff i mean he might you know i mean he acknowledges that he knew the clan fraser of lovett as his neighbors i mean did these guys ever sit around and talk about the Celtic faith possibly um i mean i've had started to wonder about that i mean based on more and more of my research i mean another kind of interesting uh thing i could kind of add with this would also be maybe like the family of frank lloyd wright um they were a welsh family the lloyd joneses and um you know there was definitely quite an obsession with you know this whole tradition within the family of course uh, lloyd uh, frank lloyd wright named his uh, studio taliesin after the welsh bard i mean all of his other family in that you know region of wisconsin named their houses the land that they were off of after welsh or celtic names um obviously frank lloyd wright initially used the celtic solar cross as his symbol he did a lot of variations on that and the celtic tree of life and a lot of other things in his early structures he did those sprite sculptures which seem to have been based on celtic water spirits and things of that nature i mean even though uh, most people would argue that there's nothing especially occultic about Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, work. I mean, again, if you know what to look for, it's actually rather obvious that he was really into this kind of stuff. So again, it begs the question, you know, was he just winging it? Or was there some kind of family tradition that came down through the arts, perhaps? Um, you know, so it's it's a very interesting subject and i mean you know again how much of it does play into just being fictitious innovations and how much of it you know ironically has come down to us through song and you know plays and that kind of thing very interesting yeah oh man i wanted to ask you too so in your blog right you talk about the the rune of thorn and you compare it to the nazi rune stuff and I wanted to ask uh, whether you still like think that analysis is accurate or if you had, you know, revised any thoughts on that. Uh, well, I mean, I kind of think it possibly might still be accurate. I mean, I haven't really had a chance to think about it that much. But I mean, um, well, I'll get into that here with our next uh, mm. little digression here, I think, when we get into the next subject. But I mean, yeah, there is... Um, uh, I mean, the whole thing with the, I mean, you know, just in general, the fact that they're trying to use the runes here is really interesting because, I mean, obviously the runes were much more, or at least allegedly were more of uh, a um, Nordic pagan thing, obviously, and not Celtic. 
um the Celts did have something similar it was what the the Argum script or oh shit. Uh, uh, do, 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 do you know what I'm talking about um, I do I don't know what it's called though yes 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 again I'm sorry guys uh, but anyway, yes, this is, um, it was kind of a similar thing that was in there, but I mean, it doesn't seem like the creators of this were using the Ogham script um, for the ruin. Uh, but again, you know, the Ogham stuff uh, does not, yes, it is spelled O-G-H-A-M. I, I'm probably butchering Ogham. Okay, Ogham. Okay, I think that's how it's pronounced anyway. Uh, so this was the Celtic tree alphabet. And um, it was, again, as it is implied, it was typically carved on trees and that type of nature. I, you know, I mean, I suppose some of the rune, the thorn rune could be seen as that. I mean, there's obviously some similarities with... Um, it does look more Norse, though. Like, yeah, yeah there you're is right. It doesn't look that Celtic. Yeah, I mean, it's... And I mean, there was a lot of this overlap because, again, a fair amount of, like, these, you know, kind of Celtic myths, you know, had, I mean, some origins, at least we think, in Germany, especially when you get into... Um, some of like the sea shanties and stuff like that. I mean, there was a lot of overlap with like, oh, what is that island? Gosh, Jimmy, I wasn't ready to do one on the child <laughs> ballads for this one. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, was mm. it so the great sulky. Uh... All right, Shetland <laughs> Island is that the one I'm thinking of? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so it's an island off of Scotland, and it was. Yes, so there were a lot of Norway people and stuff right there who were coming to the Shetlands or the Zetlands. I'm not sure if that's the actual pronunciation. But the point being that I'm trying to make with this is that there was this island here, for instance, off of Scotland, where you had a lot of Norse settling in and intermarrying with the Scots. And this was a major cultural center for some of these you know, ballads and mystical stuff that I've just been getting at. So what I'm trying to say is that, yes, I suppose there is definitely a possibility that the Algoman runic scripts could have had this kind of relationship. I mean, there was definitely a lot of overlap, I think, with the Norse being um, a seafaring people, uh, you know, who were going along the shores of the British Isles and so forth. So there might have been that connection. Um, real quick, and a, just a side note, uh, did you hear about that Scottish and Norwegian history? Do you want me to try to wing? <laughs> did you hear that uh, Yuri Geller acquired a island off the coast of Scotland that he has sort of like a quasi-sovereign citizen sort of like uh is like a micro nation that he uh sells citizenship to and he also like does magic or some shit it wouldn't surprise me i mean i think several other i mean he wasn't the first person to think of this i mean i believe there mm -hmm. were really several other british aristocrats that had already tried to do that where they were selling citizenship and so forth off of these islands but i mean <laughs> It seems like everybody like ends up going to somewhere on the British Islands. I mean, Scorzini ended up in like Ireland, I think, because like a lot of these other people did at various times. So, mm -hmm. uh, it's an interesting state of affairs, to put it mildly. All right, so getting back to the movies here, finally, kids. Mm -hmm. um, okay, <laughs> Halloween Six. So it turns out 
that the psychiatrists of Haddonfield's local sanitarium, along with, or the, let's just say the head psychiatrist, rather, and um, most of the staff of Haddonfield's local sanitarium, because obviously after years of being terrorized by Michael Myers, they would certainly need a sanitarium in the town itself. Many of the town's residents as well also belong to a, wait for it, druidic cult. This is fascinating on a lot of levels. So first off, Jimmy, what's your take on the head of this institution also moonlighting as the head of this cult? <laughs> well, you know, this really gets my ears turning. I mean, for one thing, psychiatry is really interesting, right? Because it's fundamentally non-falsifiable, which is to say it's fundamentally unscientific. So the distance between psychiatry and magic isn't as far as maybe the average person might think. I'm sure your listeners would be aware of the concept at least, right? Uh, <laughs> I actually wanted to ask you another question related to this, though, because uh, I'm sure you've thought about this. Um, but I've been workshopping this idea recently, or I'm still sort of exploring the implications of the idea that a lot of what we call MKUltra or MKUltra related proje projects is essentially attempts at doing, maybe systematizing spiritualism. Well, yeah, I mean, that's very much my sense. I mean, I think as far as it goes, you know, with the, you know, the kind of behavioral modification stuff or mind control or whatever you want to uh, call it, you know, there were basically like a two-tracked approach to this stuff, okay? So mm -hmm. you had like the really hard scientific one that a lot of people don't talk about that was sort of organized around, you know, things like Project Camelot or Project Cambridge. And a lot of this stuff was run more out of like ARPA and things like that. And this was essentially, you know, the the birth of like the Cambridge Analytica kind of stuff where you're creating these computers that can simulate um you know, reality basically and come up with predictions to the, as to how people will behave or nations will behave in the future. And this all actually, you know, kind of started out uh, ironically related to the Phoenix program. I mean, we set up these uh, data mining centers in Vietnam and we were processing all this information we were getting in about the Viet Cong to try to come up with predictive models. And then later we started doing this with other countries and so on and so forth. And eventually it got to the point where we, you know, in theory, could use these models to also manipulate people and control them. Uh, so that was, you know, the more scientific approach to this. Now, when it got into stuff like Artichoke and MK Ultra, I mean, I think that they very much were legitimately trying to investigate a lot of these occult practices to see if there was anything practical to it, which... You know, again, I know to the outsider might seem really woo-woo, but I mean, the bottom line is, folks, just think about this for a moment. The CIA and the Pentagon literally dosed thousands, if not tens or even hundreds of thousands of people with LSD, okay? How would you have to do, you know, dose that many people with acid, to finally determine that it wasn't a great you know, drug for social <laughs> I mean, you would think after maybe the, you know, the uh, fourth or fifth dozen time you had like a slip up with it. I mean, there would have been like a thought process of like, yeah, maybe we should just go back to opiates. I mean, the British had a great run with that. 
uh, or meth, for God's sake. That's another one that nobody ever talks about, but whatever. But yeah, I mean, there's just, there's no really logical reason for them to continuously do all of this weird experimentation with things like psychedelics, like over and over again, if, in my opinion, they were not trying to explore more mystical avenues. I mean, it's kind of like the same thing with like a lot of the research and ESP and so forth that grew out of this. I mean, they determined pretty early on in the game that if you know there was an actual scientific basis for ESP, it, regardless, it was not effective for spying. You know, it was just too unreliable. But we kept investigating it anyway. So yeah like <laughs> whether or not you know it works it sure works in terms of getting people to do certain things right mm -hmm. yeah so i guess the point being that like the idea that the head of the psychiatric institute would be potentially into a druidic cult is like doesn't actually seem that crazy to me <laughs> Well, I mean, one of the top psychological warfare officers uh, throughout a lot of the Cold War headed his own, um, you know, esoteric uh, mystery school. So why not? Yeah. And I was going to say, Recluse, one of my buddies who um, shout out, uh, shout out Marcus of the Return of the, Repre of the Repressed podcast. He found this, but uh, one of the uh, mental institutions in California in the 70s one of the head psychiatrists, so very much a role exactly like we're talking about right now, was a out-and-out, dyed-in-the-wool Swedenborgian. <laughs> and he was basically doing psychiatric work using a Swedenborgian framework, which is fundamentally not all that different from, like, just Scientology, basically. And so it's just, like, there is, like, a real-world example of something like this happening and it's just like astounding oh i'll do you even better than that jimmy oh no all right so for those of you not aware of this i you know i help the penny royal guys out they do their own podcast um centers around all the weird stuff that goes on in somerset kentucky if you've ever seen the netflix series hellier you know about somerset and how there's all kinds of rumors about satanic cults and other stuff being present there uh which you know again there's a lot of debate amongst many of us who have worked there about whether or not this is how legitimate those kind of claims are but that's neither here or there for me to get into but I am going to tell you a really interesting story about something that happened in Somerset in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Somerset does have its own mental institution right there. Uh -huh. In fact, uh, the last time I stayed at a hotel in Somerset, I was actually only a couple of blocks from this thing. It's huge. It's massive. Um, so anyway, um, they had this, this special program set up at this thing in the 70s for these savants there. And um, in order to try to get the most out of their creative abilities, they were having them practice arts and stuff like that. Um, and supposedly they started getting them into practicing some, you know, magical rituals or something like that. Anyway, eventually, uh, I think around 73 or 74, a scandal broke out and it was revealed that they had been taking some of these savants down 
into the basement or something like that underneath the facilities of this place and they were doing these like weird occult rituals with them okay and in theory the psychiatrists involved in this were dismissed after the mid-70s however um the guy we were just talking about, Daniel Dudden, the fantastic child ballad singer, went up there uh, in the late 1970s because uh, he had a friend, I believe, who worked there and had asked him to go up and, uh, you know, just check out what they were doing with these savants and some of the artistic things that they were doing. So Dan goes up there, sees the savants, he's going around, he sees the facility, and then nothing he has no idea about what happened the rest of the day hmm. but he got the ideal i believe for what became his opera the one about pan which has been one of the driving things of his life on that day but he doesn't remember how if i remember correctly so it's kind of a weird thing it's uh, i believe one of the only times in his life where he just had this kind of total blackout and he has no idea about what happened for those several hours after he was at the facility Damn. Uh, yeah so again guys you know this might seem utterly insane but <laughs> And uh, to throw out yet another mindfuck for you guys, another thing about Halloween 6 and this whole setup with a druidic cult, overlap with psychiatry, seems to bizarrely uh, echo the current scandal in Provo. Satanic mm. ritual abuse, because the, uh, the guy, Hamblin Lee, was accused of all this stuff was a psychiatrist initially so yeah and that was one of the big charges is that he had been you know hypnotizing his patients and then embarking upon these weird like occult rituals and stuff like that and just in general i mean i could kind of point out you know with utah specifically i mean there's obviously you know going back to the 90s there's been a lot of those allegations that there was some kind of satanic cult that controlled a lot of the um, you know, political and state institutions uh, there, not the Mormons. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, an actual satanic cult. I mean, you know, I know that there were rumors about this all over the country during this era, but the state of Utah actually did a full-blown like investigation into this. This was actually, I believe, the first time Hamlin Lee was even implicated in this kind of stuff. So... And that's kind of something else as well that, you know, I was going to ask you about, Jimmy, since a lot of this stuff about um, possible Satanism being practiced in Utah and so forth started to break in like the mid 90s and they had been filming these Halloween films there. I mean, do you think possibly that might have been a partial inspiration for some of these weird storylines in this sixth Halloween movie? I'm not sure how national those stories got, you know? Like, yes, yes, but these guys would have been, I think, filming their own location, though, I believe. That's true. I'm not sure, though, because, like, normally when you're on, when you're filming, aren't you typically, like, very focused and working, like, long hours? I mean, I could imagine maybe 
like someone tapped into writing horror films might be on the wavelength of hearing about that stuff. But actually physically being there shooting, I would imagine you're kind of busy all the time, right? Yeah, but that's kind of where a guy like a Cade, you know, like bring, mm. you know, kind of comes up because I mean, this was a dude who, yeah, I mean, typically producers aren't necessarily involved. I mean, it depends on the producer, obviously, but I mean, he yeah. may not be heavily involved, like on the day to day aspects of the film uh, being shot there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is interesting because, again, there's been, you know, obviously the long standing allegations about sort of a, you know, I mean, more nefarious cults active in Utah beyond just the mainline Mormons. I mean, it arguably kind of originated with the you know the so-called destroying angels in the mid-19th century and then there were a lot of works like uh writers of the purple sage and other kind of doyle's a, a study in scarlet that dealt with uh it's kind of like mormon cults dealed in white slavery and things like that mormon well it is funny too that you say that because like uh and i forget i don't think we totally get into the we got into this that much in the episode we did about mormonism well one of the episodes but <laughs> there was actually this whole thing where over the course of the 19th century into the 20th century the mormon church slowly had to like basically get its own membership to stop doing magic <laughs> it doesn't surprise me man it really doesn't and all that stuff was like very much like british isles like folk magic so like some of the you know for lack of a better term druidic stuff yeah potentially yeah 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 that's interesting all right so and then getting into like the you know this would have been around the 70s you know um right around the time like the first halloween movies coming out um you got good old john todd who incorporated the mormons into his satanic network and i believe he alleged that they even had a copy of lovecraft's necronomicon right there at slc <laughs> um and then jay's journal was published in 1979 uh this detailed uh a teenage boy allegedly involved in a satanic cult in pleasant grove utah and which is Provo <laughs> county i believe and this predated michelle remembers by the way this was actually i think the first of the you know modern like kind of satanic type books that were like these exposés if you will yeah um it was uh it was done by beatrice sparks uh who also later went on to do go ask alice mm, uh, yeah oh yeah <laughs> and then uh during the late 1980s you had the emergence of quote-unquote branton it's believed to be either Bruce Allen Walton or Bruce Allen Walton, the next Mormon to grow up in the SLC area. And this was the guy who really popularized the notion of shape-tipping or shape-shifting reptiles in the LDS. Uh, so you had kind of that sort of stuff emerging around the late 1980s. Um, but the big one, I think, was in 1991, 11 members of the Ogden-based Zion Society cult were arrested for ritually abusing children. So 1991, authorities started investigating SRA uh, claims statewide in Utah. Uh, and that was also when a lot of conspiracy theorists, you know, in the early 90s, like Kathy O'Brien and Fritz Springmeyer started to throw in a lot of this stuff. So, I, you know, I don't know, man. I mean, I got to say, uh, especially if you're looking at a guy like a Kate or something like that for possible inspiration. I mean, you know, if he had been 
hanging around this milieu in Utah for a couple of years while he's getting these, you know, movies filmed there. I mean, maybe he hears about some of this stuff and things like, well, we've already got kind of the judaic elements with Halloween and what have you. I mean, eh. Yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. Because, like, it's funny, a while back I was reading through Fritz Springmeier, <laughs> believe it or not, and I was actually... Sorry, Jimmy, I've done that too. We all have. <laughs> and I was... And I was fact-checking specifically uh, the portions about Mormonism. And I found, I mean, you're probably not surprised by this, but like I found so many times when he was basically citing the exact opposite thing the source said. <laughs> Which is not to say that everything he would say was wrong, obviously. But yeah, it's very funny stuff. But yeah, by the... By the early 90s, I mean, Mormonism had definitely become pretty thoroughly ingrained and um, a lot of the satanic stuff. But I mean, you know, just to me, to be honest, on top of that, though, man, I mean, speaking as somebody who's kind of wandered around some of those, uh, you know, canyons out there in Provo and, you know, just kind of outside of SLC and what have you, um, you see some pretty weird shit out there. Uh, I mean, I've been yeah. to an area, you know, supposedly where Ted Bundy took his victims, which I think is total nonsense. But there's a lot of weird freaking markings and stuff out there. I mean, I could just, you know, I can imagine just, I mean, somebody working on the crew or something like that. I mean, just going wandering around out there, whether, you know, just out getting high or drinking or something one night, just seeing some of this stuff and telling stories to the rest of the crew. And I mean, it starts getting people thinking, I mean, again, a lot of other places in the country, I wouldn't draw these kinds of conclusions, but you see some weird stuff in Royal Utah. Let's just leave it at that. Mm hmm. <laughs> all right uh so the dridic aspect is something i'd forgotten about um you know before i had started to look back in this film for the show uh but in light of some of the things that i've looked at recently with chris knowles in terms of both the west memphis three as well as serial killers like leonard lake it's led me to believe that there may be something to the notion of an overlap with serial killers in modern day druidry so what are your thoughts on this, Jimmy? Oh, you know, I'm extremely interested in this question. <laughs> so with Leonard Lake in particular, right? So he lived in a commune before his known killing spree, right? And this commune was said to have an exoteric new age, like spiritual practice ring sort of thing. Oh, it has well. hard too. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there was also an esoteric like black magic cult and the black magic cult was supposedly ran by timothy zell also known as otter also known as oberon zell ravenheart right i know you know all about oberon zell ravenheart so zell was plugged into that whole sci-fi convention thing and the whole renfair scene he knew Heinlein. He knew Walter Breen and Marion Samper Bradley. Zell argued that he invented the Gaia hypothesis. He was apparently influential in the developing polyamory movement. He was huge into magic and neo-paganism and all that stuff. So focusing on Leonard Lake, you know, he goes on to essentially have a killing spree, right? 
and various people who knew Leonard Lake said that he was involved in what he called some sort of Viking or warrior cult and or secret death cult. Interestingly, too, when the police initially raided the Lake Anang cabin compound area, they said that a cult was involved. Now, I can't really speak at length on the West Memphis Three. What I know is largely a result of listening to you, Knowles, and William Ramsey, and so forth, but it sure seems like there's like a druidic angle to some of that. Um, it's funny because I think you're like recently, I think you said um, that Satanism is fundamentally like hollow or that it's like, you know, whether you want to call it in my opinion, it's, it's basically a Catholic heresy, more or less. Yeah, it's or yeah, it's path of the Vatican, if you will. <laughs> it's too tied up with the negation of Christianity. So like, you know, whether you want to call it an ideology, religion, belief system, heresy, like either way, it seems like people who are actually really serious, probably, well, I, I know they aspire to something higher than just a negation of Christianity. And it sure seems like a lot of them gravitate towards something druidic and or something tied into the mystery religions, right? You know, which is interesting in light of a lot of the speculation that Druidry ultimately comes from ancient Egypt. Yeah, I wanted to ask, because uh, off the top of your head, are you aware of any other serial killers that have Druidic or seemingly Druidic ties? Well, yeah, the uh, the gentleman we were talking about before we started recording, well, you know, obviously we don't know if he was actually a serial killer or not, but Steve Hadell, a former LA police officer, um, has written several books implicating his father, George Hadell, being um, the murderer of the Black Delilah, uh, Elizabeth Short, makes very good case about this. And in point of fact, uh, among other things, he was able to come up with recordings uh that the la uh, da's office had when they had bugged his family home uh, during the late 40s or actually it was 1950 when they put the bug in and i think at one point george hadell had even said something like let's just say hypothetically i killed elizabeth short at this point <laughs> nobody could even prove anything about that <laughs> so it's 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 not a totally certain but he's uh, you know come pretty close to acknowledging it on police recordings and just a bunch of other things so it's a very good uh possibility and again um you know for those of you who are not familiar with this the black delilah uh was bisected and given the glasgow smile among other things it was just an absolutely brutal and horrendous murder um it's not the you know the kind of random killing that typically somebody can just walk away from after they've done it i mean usually this is uh, evidence of a deranged individual once they've killed you know they're not necessarily going to uh leave it at one victim and it does seem quite likely that george hodell was involved in several other murders um whether he was also the zodiac killer as steve hodell is alleged is debatable but again you know 
getting into this notion of a druidic cult thing i don't know if it's as implausible as it might initially seem but i don't want to get too sidetracked here but regardless george hodell did have an interest in this kind of druidry stuff he used the solar cross as the symbol for a lot of his business ventures over the years and uh he was familiar with ogden's script uh he had a very keen interest in a lot of this kind of stuff um he was also had some dealings with uh, the family of Frank Lloyd Wright. Of course, he ended up in um, the Soden slash Franklin house uh, that Lloyd Wright, Lloyd Wright, Frank Lloyd Wright's son had designed and allegedly Frank Lloyd Wright had also helped a little bit with well, as well. And I mean, again, you know, the family of Frank Lloyd Wright is another one uh, that's really interesting in all of this, of course. Um, uh, Steve Hadell postulates that his father murdered Elizabeth Short in the Soden house, the one that Lloyd Wright had um, established, and possibly this was in a very ritualistic fashion. I mean, certainly there was indications of that with the Glasgow smile and so forth. But that's interesting in light of um, the murders uh, that happened at Towson, which was Frank Lloyd Wright's studio slash residency in Wisconsin. Uh, this happened in 1914. Seven people were murdered um, by Julian Carlton, who was the chef uh, slash kind of manservant at the residency. Uh, the circumstances around the deaths of these people were very murky, um, but basically they were mostly burned alive and or hacked to death with a hatchet by Carlton. Three of them were children. Four were adults. One of them was uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's mistress. Uh, as I, you know, gone in my strange realities uh, presentation, what's interesting about this is how much similarity these deaths uh, bear to ritualistic druidic sacrifices. Um, there were three, you know, major gods within the Celtic pantheon that demanded human sacrifices. There was um, uh, Tarianus, who um, I believe was the one who uh, went for the wicker men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the wicker man one. Uh, he liked his victims burned alive. Uh, as I said, several of the victims were burned in the attacks, and Frank Lloyd Wright liked natural furnishings. He had wicker furniture. I imagine that there were probably quite a few present in uh, the dining area. Uh, then there was uh, Isis, who uh, liked his victims either hung or stabbed to death specifically with axes in fact most of the representations we've found of this deity are on ritual axes mm. so he would have been quite fond of uh a woman and her children being hacked to death with hatchet. you know it's funny you say that Rufus, because i was reading about serial murder in the 19th century and i guess the dominant form of serial murder in the 19th century in the united states anyway was actually axe murder it would not surprise me especially i mean you know if we do kind of go with this notion that there was some remnants of a druidic cult maybe among the scots irish or something like that it makes a certain kind of sense mm -hmm. um and then finally there was uh Tutatis, i think who liked his victims drowned in sacred wells and so forth there were no drownings at taliesin however frank lloyd wright had installed a japanese uh pool after damming up some of the waters on his property 
Um, and again, you know, if you've seen the Ringu films and what have you, you know that within uh, Japanese culture, there's a very strong notion of uh, the soul or the life force uh, being capable of being trapped in water after death. So uh, these killings would have all happened right in the proximity of this uh, pool that Frank Lloyd Wright had installed. Again, I, you know, I, I don't like to come out and try to indicate that these guys were, you know, knowingly involved in some kind of Judaic cult or something like that. But I mean, there are strong ritualistic aspects to these murders. And it is rather interesting that, you know, at least two Frank or two residencies linked to this family have featured especially grisly and ritualistic murders. It might just simply be, uh, you know, them tapping into unconscious forces that they are not ultimately able to control. And this is the kind of fallout of it. I don't really know, but it's certainly very telling that you seem to see a lot of this stuff turn up over and over again. And to kind of further add to the mind fuck, um, so Taliesin, it's, um, it's only about maybe 15 miles from Circle Sanctuary which along with the Church of the All-World uh, body set up by the Zells was the other major, you know, neo-pagan mm. outfit throughout much of the uh, the 20th century or second half of the 20th century. Of course, they were the ones who set up like the legal defense fund that ultimately led to, you know, pagan chaplains and stuff like that in the U.S. military. In fact, they were one of the first neo-pagan outfits to try to get their members ordained uh, so they could have a formal ministry and that kind of thing. They also were the ones primarily responsible for setting up a lot of the festivals uh, that became instrumental in promoting neo-paganism throughout the 80s, uh, especially the Pagan Spirit Festival or Pagan, Pagan, Pagan Spirit Gathering, which was the main one that they established. Uh, so they, you know, had quite extensive ties to the Zells and a lot of these other people. And um, a certain individual known as Paul Dorr, uh, Paul Dore is somebody that Jared Kubik has uh, made a compelling case for being the Zodiac killer. Um, he was also part of the whole Rincon scene, had an interest in Druidism himself, knew Walter Breen. In fact, I believe they were in a science fiction club together where Dore was the president and Breen was the vice president. Mm. And uh, Dore was also involved with a lot of far-right groups, uh, with the Minutemen and things like that. And um, he was also a vicarious writer. Uh, he wrote quite extensively to Green Egg, the newsletter of uh, Church of All World, and he also wrote quite extensively uh, to the Circle Sanctuary uh, newsletter. I think it was just called like the Network or something like that. And um, interestingly, uh, throughout the 1980s, he was really fixated on trying to set up a dead drop uh, through two separate publications. Uh, one of them was... Uh, the publication in the network of Circle Sanctuary. And the other one was Soldier of Fortune magazine. <laughs> Real crossover with Leonard Lake, huh? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Paul Dore, man, you know, he also had fantasies about getting a little cabin and uh, bringing a woman back up there with him and uh, raping her until she started to see it as a kind of spiritual experience in fact he was even taking out one ads in the late 1970s early 1980s to find a female companion for this kind of stuff 
Mm -hmm. Oh, but I'm sure that's just all a coincidence, eh, Jimmy? <laughs> I mean, you know, they might have only been at the same freaking Society of Creative Anachronisms festival in 68 or 69 and saw the unicorn together. But yeah, I think they could possibly have been in a cult together, I'm sure. It's like uh, Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon, but for the unicorn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all about the unicorn. Oh, God. And then there was the other instance of this, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Colleen Stan of your Stein. Uh, that was the girl in the box. Oh, sure. fuck. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that case, yeah, she was held a captive for seven years between 1977 and 1984. She was abducted in Northern California as well and also held in like a cabin, isolated cabin area where she was raped repeatedly. So. Yeah, the uh, courts actually deemed that mind control like fundamentally works because it applied to her situation i i do remember that case yeah i've heard that um you know the purpose behind that might have also been a fan of uh uh the gore uh is that how they're pronounced g-o-r the, 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 uh, oh yeah yeah that science fiction fantasy yeah, thing. series by like john norman or something like that paul Dore was also a fan of those books coincidentally interesting Ah, so yeah, oh, you did a cult, you know, <laughs> uh, isolated cabins in the woods. Um, oh gosh, and, and we didn't even get into like Wendelin Penderwin, did we? Because uh, he also played at the pagan spirit gatherings too. That was like one of his first really big outings. He was, of course, the guy who owned the compound that Leonard Lake met his wife on. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's good old Pinderwin. Yeah, his the, that compound he had was also named after a Celtic guy. It had some kind of Celtic name, didn't it? I don't recall. Okay, okay, okay. So, yeah, the just ah, it, it's very odd, folks. But I mean, just alone from like my research on like this scene in Northern California and like kind of its area around Southern Wisconsin, around Madison. I mean, just those two sites alone i mean you can find so much overlap with a lot of these characters and pretty ample evidence that there's some kind of strange spiritual practices being well admitted around there let me let me just run this past you real quick <laughs> um so simon which is to say peter lavender right he wrote in his book on the net on the necronomicon that you know, he was associated with various magical circles and specifically with the neo-pagan druidic side of things. I guess in the 70s, they, the community, such as it is, was deathly afraid that there was going to be a witch hunt against them uh, and that there would be a return of, like, burning witches. And that always struck me as an interesting detail because, like, Say what you will, of course, the United States has persecuted communities that don't deserve it, right? But, like, I don't see the federal government coming down on the neo-pagan community unless they might have actually been doing something, you know? It's just a thought. Yeah, well, I mean, also, too, 
you know, there was because uh, people tend to confabulate like the new age and the neo-pagan communities. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a lot of overlap now. But I mean, my understanding is that uh, they were more distinct from one another in the 70s. And one of yeah. the big kind of like differences was the socioeconomic factor. I mean, a lot of the people in the new age community, this is, you know, like your Stuart brand types, you know, or you know catalog type people i mean involved in the tech sector and things like that so i mean the point being like these people had money you know what i'm saying like they probably didn't have like a lot of feelings of persecution or that kind of thing but i mean in terms of like a lot of the neo-pagans and what have you was a bit of a different situation i mean a lot of them weren't straight up broke or anything but i mean they did leave uh live a little closer to the fringes Uh, it kind of seems like there might have been maybe more overlap with like some of the harder drug scenes and you know Mm. that kind of thing as well so i could see how just in general they might have had a more cynical or um paranoid take on the way things could i mean unfold during this era Mm. Mm. That is interesting that Lavenda was apparently close to the neo-Dredidic elements. <laughs> um, all right, so there are two different versions of Halloween 6 available, the standard theatrical one and the producer's cut. So have you seen both? And if so, uh, what were some of the changes made? Yeah, so I believe I only saw the theatrical cut. I don't think I saw the producer's cut. Uh, my buddy Blauer talked about some of the differences. It's interesting, right? Because I'll be honest with you. I didn't see Halloween 4, 5, or 6. Um, well, excuse me. I didn't see 4 or 5. So, like, I only saw 6. And I found it kind of hard to follow having not seen the prior two films. Um, I found there to be a lot of plots <laughs> going at the same time, some of which didn't necessarily pay off. I think taken as a trilogy, maybe it would stand better, but just on its own, Halloween 6 felt like it needed the other films to be intelligible, apart from the interesting themes at play. What about you? Well, I mean, again, it's kind of hard for me to say because I had already seen the fourth, fifth, uh, the fifth ones before, you know, the sixth mm-hmm. one come out. So, like, Obviously, I mean, I was in a different, you know, situation than you. So, I mean, it was a little easier for me to follow Halloween 6. But, I mean, yeah, I I know what you're saying, though. I mean, as you kind of alluded to, the screenwriter had had to sit down and basically write, like, a series Bible or something like that to try to, you know, keep all of the different storylines, you know, you know, keep track of all of them, basically. Uh, And that's kind of one of the reasons why, like, a lot of fans do like Halloween 6, because um, the scribe actually did make kind of a Herculean effort to try, um, you know, bring together all of these different plot threads and, like, make sense of everything and bring it together into, like, one coherent narrative. But, yeah, I could definitely see how, though, if you were coming to it as an outsider, it would seem, like, really like yeah all over the place whereas i mean i guess if you had been around for the prior couple of movies it was just like oh it's all finally coming together now you know like yeah i could see that (laughs) 
All right, kids, we are going to stop there. Uh, I had originally planned on, uh, you know, this whole discussion about Halloween 6 and Texas Chainsaw Massacre to unfold over the course of a single episode of The Farm. Uh, but as you can see, we got a good half hour or so in uh, and we're just, you know, wrapping up with Halloween 6. So it seemed prudent to just uh, give Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4 its own episode which uh, will be up uh, on November 1st, All Souls Day, in our Patreon section. Uh, and I'm going to continue with the Halloween theme going forward on uh, Halloween itself as well. Uh, on that date, you guys are going to get J.G. Michaels on here with me. And we are going to be discussing the classic Catherine Bigelow vampire film, Near Dark. So, uh, if nothing else, I hope you guys are getting a good... Uh, recommendation pool of uh horror films for the uh, holiday season here again you know we uh covered some really fascinating movies uh in this installment that came out during that peculiar time during the early to mid 90s uh kind of as the slasher fad had declined a bit at the end of the 80s and before screen uh revived it in 1996 so movies like Wes Craven's New Nightmare People Under the Stairs uh, movies Clyde Barker did like Nightbreed, Lord of Illusions, John Carpenter's At the Mouth of Madness, especially. Uh, there's some really great stuff like that out there. Another um, really good Carpenter movie, and it's actually another one of my favorite vampire movies that uh, I forgot to mention in the J.G. Michaels episode is uh, John Carpenter's Vampires, which came out at the end of the decade and is a fabulous combination of uh western and vampire germs something that uh, jg and i get into more in that particular episode and uh you know besides near dark i uh, also cover a couple of my other favorite vampire movies like fright night lost uh, boys and all that good stuff so yeah again you know there's a a lot of interesting films there for you guys to uh scope out as we head into the home stretch here for halloween uh and i think on that note we will sign off for now uh as always i want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support and with that i say to you as always good night and good luck to you all <laughs>